Good morning. We're going to be looking together at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. But before we look there, I want to read for you or with you from Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles or your phones with you and you want to turn to Psalm 51, we'll read the first 12 verses together and then we'll move over to Mark, chapter 1. Psalm 51, a Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we look together into your word. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding by your spirit. Help us to discern those things that are spiritually discerned. Open our ears, Father, to the truth that you have for us. Apply it to our hearts that we may understand our own sinfulness and your holiness, that you may draw us into closer fellowship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. You may have noticed that we're somewhat thinner on the ground than usual. Uh, There are a number of families in the church who are dealing with certain members, at least, who have tested positive for COVID, and so they're staying away. Our backup preacher came down with COVID a couple of days ago, and our primary preacher came down with COVID yesterday. So I crave your indulgence as we go through the sermon that was put together on relatively short notice. Well, I've had one service to practice, so. (laughs) Um, Psalm 51 has been on my heart over these last couple of weeks for what I trust are fairly obvious reasons. Um, As we, as a church, ask God to work in our midst, we all need to deal with our own sin. And I think based on the prayer meetings that have been happening over the last two weeks, that there is a real sense of the working of God in our midst and uh, crucial to God dealing with us is us dealing with our own sin. And so the passage which we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 1 speaks about sinfulness and how God deals with sin. And so that's what I want us to look at together. So it's Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him, that is, to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. 
Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So as we look at this passage, again, I think the overarching theme here is how Jesus deals with sinners. Uh, And there are four points that I want to make and then draw some application. Now, John MacArthur has been a a real blessing to to me and and to our family over the years. We have his set of commentaries on the bookshelves. Uh, But one of the things that you may have noticed if you've done any studying with his commentaries or if you listen to many of his messages is that he has a, a fondness for making sure that all his points start with the same letter. Sometimes to the point where you wonder if he's maybe stretching things a little bit. So I confess to you that I have perhaps stretched things a little bit this morning because I do have four points and they all begin with P. So whether that's the influence of John MacArthur in my life, I don't know. But we are going to look together at the pity of Christ, at the power of Christ, at the piety of Christ, and then here's where it's really a bit of a stretch, the pig-headedness of the man who was cured. So the pity, the power, the piety of Christ, and then the pig-headedness of the leper. So first, in verse 40, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. So the gospel of Mark is probably the first gospel that was written. It was probably written with the influence of Simon Peter, Christ's disciple, the apostle Peter. Um, And Mark recorded, we believe, many of Peter's recollections of Jesus' actions and teaching. And so this episode happening as it does in the first chapter of Mark happens early in Jesus' public ministry. Uh, At this time, he is touring through the region of Galilee, the northern part of what used to be the kingdom of Israel, and his hometown, his stomping grounds, if you like. He was born, as you know, in Bethlehem, but was raised in Nazareth, Galilee. And so this is home territory for him and for many of his disciples. And in the verses preceding this, Jesus has begun his public ministry. He has called his disciples, and he has begun his ministry of teaching and healing in the first of what would be three tours through the region of Galilee over the approximately three years of his public ministry. And so as he has done this, word about him has begun to spread. People are aware that there is this man named Jesus who is doing miraculous things. He is driving out demons. He is healing the sick. He is teaching with authority. And he is being followed by a close crowd of disciples and by larger crowds of of hangers-on who are there perhaps for the spectacle or there for healing or there to see what is really happening. And already people have begun to talk about the possibility that this man could be the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one who is going to come and deliver Israel. Now, this point, of course, it has been 400 years or more since a prophet appeared in Israel, with the exception of John the Baptist, who had, you remember, appeared shortly before announcing the Lamb of God. And so in those 400 years, the nations of Israel, nation of Israel had been through upheavals, had returned from their Babylonian captivity, 
They had been conquered by Alexander the Great. They had been ruled by a succession of his generals and their descendants. They had briefly obtained independence in the Jewish revolts and cleansed the temple. And then they had been conquered by the Romans, who were currently ruling them through the means of Herod. And so the teaching about the Messiah in the Old Testament over the last 400 years had become very wrapped up in the Israelites' political situation. And so when the Israelites talked about a Messiah, they were looking for a political savior. They were looking for one who would come and overthrow the Roman yoke, one who would come and restore Israel to her position of preeminence in the world, who would bring back the glory days of the kingdom of David and of Solomon, and where the kingdom of God would once more be manifest on the earth, and they, God's chosen people, would rule in it. And so those were the expectations that the people of Israel had. And so when people started to whisper that perhaps this man could be the Messiah, that's what they were looking for. And we'll see as we go through this passage that Jesus did not come to inaugurate a political kingdom, but a spiritual one. And that caused some tension amongst those to whom he came to minister. But first of all, we look and we see Christ's pity. A better word, I think, is compassion, because it's an active word, but he showed pity or compassion on this man with leprosy. Now, leprosy was and is an infectious disease. It's caused by a bacteria And it's only recently, within the last 40 years or so, that a a cure has been available through modern medicine. So at the time, lepers were outcasts. They were hideous and deformed. The disease causes skin changes. It affects the nerves and interferes with the ability to experience pain. So patients with leprosy would develop sores on their feet and not notice that they'd been walking with a a stone in their shoe or they developed a blister. They would maybe cut themselves on the hand and not notice that they had scraped up against something sharp and they would get infections of which they weren't aware. And so they would lose fingers and toes and hands and feet and they were shunned by the community. They had to avoid human contact. They had to live as the outcasts of society. And this was not only because they were hideous to look upon, but because they were infectious and there was a risk that they could transmit this terrible disease to others with whom they came in contact. And so we read in the Law of Moses in Leviticus the protocol for dealing with people who had leprosy. Leviticus chapter 13 and verse 45 says, The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, And cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. Now, of course, this was given as the Israelites were traveling in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. And the camp was where they lived. The camp was where all the Israelites gathered together. And at the center of the camp was the tabernacle where God visibly manifested his presence with the Israelites. So to live outside the camp meant to be cut off not only from social interaction, but from spiritual interaction. And in these days, when the Israelites were living in settled cities and towns, 
Lepers were similarly cut off and had to live outside the camp. But in this case, it meant that they often lived in caves and amongst the rocks in the wilderness. They were cut off from the synagogue, which was the center of political and spiritual life for the Jewish people. And so they were truly alone in the world. Perhaps they lived in colonies with other lepers so that they could have some human contact. But they were cut off from their friends, from their family, and from the ministry of the word of God. Somehow, despite his isolation and being cut off from society, this man must have heard of Jesus' miracles. The verses that immediately precede this passage, uh, just before Jesus goes away to pray, it talks about Jesus healing many. He went out into the countryside, and people took their sick, their ill to him. After sunset, they continued to bring him. The whole town gathered at the door. Actually, I shouldn't say in the countryside. It's when he's staying in town. The whole town came to the door of the house where he was staying to bring their sick, and he healed them. And Jesus has been doing this throughout Galilee, and so this leper has heard that there is a man who might be able to heal him. And he believes, in fact, that Jesus is able to heal him. He comes full of faith. His only doubt is not about Christ's ability, but only about his willingness, because he comes and says to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. So he came risking rejection or scorn. He didn't know Jesus. Perhaps he would have been ridiculed. Perhaps he would have been shunned and sent away and said, You are not worthy of healing. I don't heal people like you. But he came anyway because his need for healing was greater than any fear or any shame that he was experiencing. He knew that he needed to be healed and that Jesus was his hope for healing. So he came and what does it say? Jesus did not laugh at him. He did not send him away, but instead he was filled with compassion. And that literally means to suffer with. And this is a beautiful word, and I think it's a beautiful picture of what Christ came to earth to do, to enter into the sufferings of his people and to treat them as his own. Remember what it says in Isaiah chapter 53, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And so the cross was the ultimate expression of Christ's compassion. And he humbled himself, not merely as the king of heaven to come and live on earth, to live in the grandest palace that the earth could provide, to live as Caesar lived in Rome, would have been an unbelievable step down in humility for Christ compared to the glory of heaven. But not only did he come to earth, he didn't come to a palace. He came to be born in a manger, to lie in the food trough of the animals. And he came to live as a humble peasant with no fanfare, to live as a humble teacher with no place to lay his head, no material possessions. He entered in fully to the sufferings of his people. He hungered and thirsted. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And he was filled with compassion. We have a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so I want to read to you just briefly from Deuteronomy chapter 30, talking about the obligations that God took upon himself as part of his covenant relationship with the people of Israel. So it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, When you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. 
and gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. The Lord our God is a just God, compassionate, abounding in love, slow to anger. And Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of that compassion. And as he was here on earth, taking our sufferings upon him, he demonstrated his compassion to this pitiful leper. He said, I am willing. He was filled with compassion. And compassion is a better word than pity because it implies involvement in action. So not only did he feel bad for the leper, the way that we might feel bad for the people in Ukraine who are currently experiencing the horrors of war, but he had compassion on this man. He suffered with him. And more than that, he was able and willing to do something about it. So what did Jesus do? It says he reached out his hand and touched him. Now this in itself was an amazing action. This was socially and legally taboo. You were not to touch a leper because he was unclean. You risked contracting the disease yourself. To touch a leper would have made you ceremonially unclean. And so this leper now, when was the last time that someone had reached out to touch him? We don't know how long he had been cast out from his family and friends. We don't know how long he had been living outside the camp, outside the town. We don't know whether he lived with others or whether he was completely solitary. But it is reasonable to assume that it had been years since someone had actually reached out in love and affection and touched him. And that's what Christ did. And he didn't have to do that. Right? We have multiple examples of Christ healing simply with a word, right? But Jesus chose in this instance to reach out and touch this man to demonstrate the depths of his compassion. And again, what a picture of humility. The king of heaven who came to live so humbly on this world did not turn his nose up even to the point of reaching out to touch this unclean, disfigured, hideous creature who would come to him asking for his mercy. And so we see not only the pity or the compassion of Christ, but his power. Because what happened as soon as he reached out and touched the leper, what does it say? Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. So here we have the evidence of Christ's divine power. This was a disease that at that time, as I said, had no cure. It was only recently that we discovered that treatment with multiple antibiotics is able to to eradicate this disease if it's caught early enough. But here is Christ reaching out and simply touching the man, and immediately he was cured. And so do you remember when John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod, and he had been in prison for quite some time, and as he sat there in prison, he began to wonder if he had got things right. right? Remember, he had, he had been sent to prepare the way of the one who comes in the name of the Lord to make straight paths for him. He had seen Jesus approaching along the shore and had said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yet here was John sitting in prison thinking, Things haven't gone according to plan. And so he sent his disciples who were still in touch with him. He sent them to Jesus to ask, Are you the one or should we be waiting for someone else? Do you remember that? Do you remember the answer that Jesus gave? It happens in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4. 
Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So these miracles were Jesus' evidence of his power and of his divinity. This is what he used to prove to the world that he was who he claimed to be. And it was by those miracles that he stamped the legitimacy of his authority on his ministry and said, I am the son of God. There is no one who can heal the way that I heal apart from God. And then what did Jesus do? He sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So Jesus has demonstrated his pity. He has demonstrated his power. And now he demonstrates his piety. So remember, we spoke about the fact that messianic fervor was growing in the region of Galilee. People had political expectations of who this miracle worker was, what he was going to be. We can see this throughout Jesus' public ministry. Things get to a point where there is such enthusiasm that people are determined to take him and make him king by force. They say, here is a man who can feed us, who can clothe us, who can heal us. We will have him as our king, and he will kick out the Romans. He will displace them and raise us up to the position that we deserve as the children of God on this earth. As you know, that was not... Christ's plan. And so as this messianic enthusiasm is growing, he warns this man, don't go out and tell everybody about this. The time has not yet come. Christ had teaching to do. He had ministry to complete before events came to their climax and he would be betrayed and crucified, not as a political messiah, but as a spiritual redeemer. But in the meantime, Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So at this point, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, because this was early in Jesus' public ministry, they had not yet made up their minds about him. And so he was seeking to demonstrate to them that he was not setting himself up in opposition to God's law, but in fact, he had come to fulfill it. Now, what many people at that time interpreted as God's law were actually the rules and regulations and the extras that had grown up in the rabbinical teaching over the course of hundreds of years to the point where many Jews revered the teachings of the elders more than they revered God's law itself. And the Pharisees had fenced themselves about with all these extra regulations down to the smallest degree of daily life Jesus came to set all those aside, and he said over and over again as he taught, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and then he would go on to expound the true applications of God's law as they affect not only our outward lives, but our inward lives as well. But at this time, Jesus was saying that he is here to uphold the law, and the Mosaic law stipulated that if you were healed of an infectious disease such as this, that the course of action you had to take was to go 
to the priests and present a sacrifice, three lambs, or if you were poor, one lamb and two pigeons, to be a sin offering and a burnt offering and a guilt offering. And these would be offered, and the priest would examine the skin of the person who came and declare, yes, you are clean, you have been restored into fellowship. And so what Jesus is doing here is demonstrating that he is fulfilling the law, and what does it say, as a testimony to the priests. So he says to the man, go and do what God has commanded in this situation. I have healed you. You now go to the priests and have them confirm this healing as a testimony to them, both that Jesus has the power to heal and that he is doing it out of respect and in accordance with the law of his father. And again, this is a beautiful picture of salvation and that Christ alone is able to cleanse. But when it comes to sin, instead of offering pigeons and lambs, Christ ultimately would himself be the sacrifice that was offered and he would be both the one who cleanses and the one who is sacrificed to bring us not only physical healing and restoration into God's physical community, but spiritual healing and restoration into relationship with him. So again, the fact that Christ told the man to go and present himself to the priests was not to suggest that his cleansing was insufficient. He didn't need to do anything else. The priests didn't need to do anything further, but it was to demonstrate the power of God and to allow the man to confess to the priests the greatness of God who had healed him. I just want to remind you briefly of one other famous leper, maybe one who springs to mind from the Old Testament, Naaman, the general. Do you remember he came to Israel at the advice of his slave girl to be healed of his leprosy by the prophet of God? And after some hesitation, he goes and dips himself seven times in the Jordan River, and he is cleansed. And he goes back. Do you remember it says in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 15, Then Naaman is all, and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except the God of Israel. And that is exactly what Christ is doing here as well. He says to the man, go and show the priests that you have been cleansed and testify to them who has cleansed you. But instead, we come to the fourth point, the pig-headedness, if you'll forgive me, of the leper. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. We talked already about the expectations that came with the notion of messiahship and how the Jews had really rejected the notion that they needed a savior. They had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. They were God's people. They didn't need to be saved. They needed to be liberated from political bondage. And so that's the Messiah that they were expecting. And so Jesus tell this man, tells this man not to go out and spread the word because there was already enough enthusiasm. He didn't need it to be added because, again, the time had not yet come. He would eventually come to the climax of his confrontation with the religious leaders. And as a result, they would hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. But that was in the future. He had a mission to accomplish, and he had his own divine timing. So Jesus was waiting until the right hour had come 
And that's why he instructs this man not to go and tell the whole countryside. But the man doesn't listen. Now, we can, we can assume that he was not trying to actively obstruct Jesus' ministry. The charitable light in which we can cast this is that he was just incredibly excited. Imagine, here's someone who has been living with this deformed body, with his social isolation, missing his family and his friends terribly, and all of a sudden, he's been cleaned, he's been cleansed, he's healed. The first thing he wants to do is go and tell everyone the good news that he has been healed. He's right, he's back. Here I am, remember me? I'm with you once again. And so we can understand, perhaps, even if we can't excuse his excitement and the fact that he didn't actually listen to what Jesus told him. So he probably had good intentions. He probably had good motives. He probably thought of other people that he wanted Jesus to heal now that he knew that Christ was full of compassion and had the power to heal. As I say, that's the... That's the charitable construction we can place on this. The other thing, the other possibility, is that he had come to Christ purely for physical cleansing and didn't realize his greatest need. It may be that if you talked to that leper and asked him, what do you need more than anything else, that his answer would have been, I need to be healed of my leprosy so that I can get my life back. What he actually needed more than anything else was to be healed of his sin so that he could get his soul back. And so it is possible that this man who came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean, and who received Christ's healing, that his submission only went that far. That as he knelt, he knelt in body only and not in spirit. That he did not submit himself to the salvation that Christ offered and that he was unwilling to follow Jesus' instructions because he already had what he wanted. And what a tragedy that would be to be touched, to be literally touched by the Son of God and to come away with only physical healing. I want to make five points in application as we close. First of all, this is obvious, I think, from the message, we have a compassionate Savior. Praise the Lord, we have a compassionate Savior. He came to seek and save those who are lost. He is willing to make us clean. And not only that, but he is willing, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins And over and over, day by day, week by week, we return to the throne of grace and confess that despite our salvation, despite the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the flesh is strong within us and it battles against the Spirit and we sin and we fall. But praise the Lord, he is gracious and compassionate and willing to forgive. In light of that, remember that we also are to be compassionate. Remember the parable of the unmerciful servant that Jesus told. There was a a man who owed millions and millions of dollars, a figure too big for us to wrap our heads around. And he went 
to the ruler to whom he owed this money and fell on his knees and said, forgive me, I cannot pay. And what did the man do? He had mercy on him. He forgave his debt and set him free. And what did the servant do? He walked out and he found a man who owed him a few hundred dollars. And he took him by the neck and shook him and said, pay me everything you owe. Some other servants saw this and they reported it back to the king. They said, this is what has happened. And do you remember what he did? He took the unmerciful servant and he gave him to the jailers and said, you will be tortured until you pay back everything you owe, which is impossible. He would never be able to pay back that debt. So to us who have been shown mercy, mercy is expected to others. Paul wrote in Colossians, forgive as the Lord forgave you. The second point I want to make is that we are all moral lepers. We, until Christ called us and saved us, all lived outside the camp. We were all unclean. Paul writes in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. If all turned away, together become worthless. None of us can live up to God's standards of holiness. And none of us can deserve or merit the compassion that he shows to us. And the, the leprosy of this man is an apt picture of the sin that all of us carried with us before we were saved. I told you that it's caused by a bacterium. And just as lepers, before the advent of modern antibiotics to treat the leprosy, just as lepers were helpless in the face of this infection, we are helpless because of our infection with sin. We are cast outside of God's presence by virtue of our sinfulness. We are hideous. We are unlovable. We are unlovely. Despite all the things that we might think about ourselves, that's only because we fail to see ourselves the way God sees us in his unimaginable holiness. Everything we have to offer is as filthy rags. The deformed body is a leper who cannot even think that he has anything to offer God, simply falls on his knees and says, have mercy on me, if you are willing. So Christ, and only Christ, is able to make us clean. There's another parallel which I think is important. I mentioned that leprosy affects the nerves and makes people insensible to injuries. Isn't that what sin does to us? If we allow it, free reign in our lives. It make us, makes us insensitive. The more we sin, the easier it is to sin. Our consciences become less sensitive. and We are more able to justify things and to set them aside and say, that doesn't matter. So sin dulls our consciences and it hardens our hearts until we become progressively more and more disfigured, losing the likeness of the God in whose image we were created until we come to Christ and say, I am a leper Make me clean. And Christ is our only hope for moral cleansing. Nothing and no one else is sufficient or effective, but he is all sufficient and completely and perfectly effective. Just as the leper's physical cure could withstand the scrutiny of the priest who would come with all the weight of the law behind him and examine his skin and say, yes, you are clean. You are restored. So the spiritual cure that we obtain from Christ can satisfy the scrutiny 
and the demands of God's holy law. God can look at us and examine us and say, you are cured because he looks at us and sees not our leprosy, but Christ's righteousness, which has been applied to us. He will examine us and will declare us clean. Fourthly, we're called to submit to God's will. Unlike this man, who perhaps with the best of intentions went out and began doing what he thought was most important, we are called to submit ourselves to God if we are truly saved. We have to admit that he knows best, that his will is perfect, and that often, even though we can't understand the reason for some of his commands or why we are instructed to behave the way he tells us to, even when it goes against what we think would be the best thing, that we have been saved as his bond slaves. Doulos, where we are as slaves to obey unquestioningly everything he says with our very existence to be wrapped up in pleasing and serving the master who has bought us. And in this world, and especially our modern Western world, this is a foreign concept, right? We, we are surrounded by a culture that tells us that we are number one, and we have to look out for number one, that what we need to do is what's best for us, and that what we want to do is the standard of what's right. And Christian counterculture, Christ stands separate to that and says, not what you want, but what God calls you to do. And we have to, we can do that by the grace of his spirit in confidence that his plans for us are best, even if we don't understand them at the time. And finally, despite our shortcomings, God continues to work. Let's read the last sentence of this passage As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. He had to stay outside in the lonely places because of this messianic fervor that had been whipped up and the selfish ambitions of the people who came to him, thinking again that they knew best, that they could tell him what to do, that they could use him for their own purposes and their own satisfaction. But what does it say? Even though he stayed outside in the lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So even though the leper disobeyed Christ's command, even though he went and spread the news everywhere, even though he acted in opposition to God's will, he did not thwart God's purposes. People still came. We may fail. We may fail to live up to the standards that God sets. We may fail to obey him in the ways that he has commanded, yet he continues to work. Unbelievers may actively oppose the work of the gospel, They may persecute God's church. They may institute laws and policies that are contrary to the scriptures. But people will still come. God's will and his plan will prevail. And this is extremely comforting. Because we know that his plans don't depend on our success. We are called to contribute to them. But he will continue to work all things according to his purposes and for his glory. Let's pray.